In an episode where we cover each Central Division team who all essentially played their first post-All-Star break game, whatever team you're a fan of, take a deep breath from the results, win or loss, it's one game. The overreaction in either result is admitting an overinvestment in your home favorite team. That's why homer takes in sports, including hockey, are the worst ones. And it's something I'm working on doing less of, although covering eight teams, maybe I've just elevated to eight teams of bias from one. Although if the teams were like children, when they play against each other and there aren't tie games, there is going to be a scoreboard winner and a loser at the end of each of those games. So do I still have favorites? Then, dependent on each team's playing to its best level, often you hear coaches talk of playing to their team identity good as an explanation, or some nights a goalie or a player does have an individual memorable game that tilts the results for his team. I have a sports betting rule for fans that is essentially equivalent to pro sports telling its athletes not to bet on their own sports games. Conflict of interest, obviously. For fans betting, you require a clear mind, not your heart when making bets fans should avoid betting on their favorite team because that's the one you have blinders in assessing most if i say instead bet on teams i couldn't care less about in my case boston and toronto i should be better analytically determining who wins between those two teams why simply because i truly don't care who wins between them or most days that they are playing a game at all that my friends is objectivity for sound betting having no skin in the game till the bet is placed approach that's near to impossible to have. Interesting is how Sportsnet and 32 Thoughts Jeff Merrick views it. First, sports journalism as storytelling that Merrick has become one of the best at at present that maybe we owe name-dropping growing up watching Hockey Night in Canada's Ron McLean for as Merrick or myself essentially did as to the next level hockey storytelling media personality to try to dare we say be as good as one day. Merrick has this phrase of cheer for the players not the teams. He used that on a recent radio podcast uh, earlier this week or last week. That would certainly for a national coverage media guy help with bias, although it doesn't from a fan perspective in hockey, that's truly a team sport. Respect the talents of your opponents, maybe? Winnipeg hockey fans can respect Wayne Gretzky as the GOAT, but it also meant years of the late generational talent Dale Howarchuk and the hometown Jets getting out to watch another city enjoy multiple championships that could well create a local sports complex. Merrick is talented near the top of his game in the national media, but hockey is a team sport and each market's team wants to win the Stanley Cup and you simply can't tell people even how to merge that, coalesce it, or even mingle the idea of cheering for just the players and not the teams. If Sidney Crosby's Pittsburgh Cup years also include knocking out Washington's Alex Ovechkin's team, likewise, it says nothing about the Hall of Famer's talents, respectively. But your favorite is biased by really the team and the market you like most. Like the idea of multi-team fandom is probably reverse in nature. The last team Pittsburgh fans want to see win a championship is Washington or vice versa because of the rivalry. The talented star players fuel the team's rivalries. And that makes cheering for both Ovi and Crosby kind of impossible 
respecting the star players as stars but then you do also have a team you cheer for more than those star players that's either on your team or playing against it was washington winning the 2018 stanley cup more cheered for ovi getting a stanley cup or the coming together of hockey fans not wanting a first year expansion team vegas from winning it if your market has suffered and never won the cup or for years has been say two generations since they last did win it a first year team winning the cup isn't a feel-good sporting moment except for that never suffered a day new market it's often rare for a sports fan to once their favorite team is out not to hope a hated division or conference team doesn't hoist the trophy more than caring slightly more about the team that prevented it winnipeg lost its nhl team 1.0 and locals picked all sorts of new nhl teams very few continue to care for the jets when they went to arizona LA's 2012 and 2014 Cup wins have a different vibe for me, and that has zero to do with the Kings team at all. In 2012, they won against New Jersey, and I was a Marty Brodeur and Devils fan when I was a younger kid. That was my team growing up when Winnipeg left Winnipeg. I wasn't wanting LA to win in 2012, but versus the Rangers in 2014, For the same fandom for New Jersey, I definitely was cheering for LA because a New Jersey fan can't, even for New York Ranger legend Hendrick Lundqvist's Hall of Fame career, missing a cup want the Rangers to win. Probably something about a kicked in allowed or disallowed goal back in 94 that cost the Devils rightfully the cup to the Rangers that year that was kind of stolen that one and with a GM and collection of Euler dynasty and money to do it as a additional skate boot when you think of Winnipeg roots. By the way, Merrick's totally a Ranger fan or shall we say more objectively, Merrick at least ascribes to bigger markets winning is better for the NHL and that's something I could care less on. I like underdogs, and I don't care if two small NHL markets play in the least watch cup final by comparison, because if Columbus and Arizona end up having the best NHL teams one day as markets everyone else doesn't care for, well, I like that better than LA playing the Rangers every single year. I stopped watching baseball because it was just the same big money, big market teams year after year after year. And if the NHL ends up like that, I'm probably simply going to start watching and attending Western Hockey League junior games instead. The NHL's player safety department isn't about player safety. It's the functionary appearance of it. I'm not here to make assessments of that department's decision making or lack of it. I pass along the inconsistent rulings as they affect our eight teams. That's it. Winnipeg and Minnesota both have local bias of Minnesota Marcus Foligno's knee on Winnipeg's Adam Lowry. It warrants suspension in of itself, and functionarily, the NHL gave one. Minnesota fans, you can't control bad ref game management to excuse Felino's knee, although the refing could have prevented Felino's suspension by tossing the second-started first fight between Felino and Lowry, both of them out of the game, then simply everyone would complain about them having done that instead. What should be talked about is Minnesota letting their focus be distracted by the refing then on playing the other team. St. Louis lost a game earlier this year because of this lone fact as well. 
And even if Winnipeg splits the division games with the home teams winning their respective home games, Minnesota's overall play to this point has them finish ahead in the division standings when the regular season ends. It's unlikely Winnipeg catches Minnesota. If a team starts playing the rest and not the opposition, it usually results in a loss. The composure is to find a level of play officiating can't determine the outcome with. The Minnesota loss in Winnipeg is a recent example of not doing that. Minnesota lost focus and composure on their own to get away from their game and identity, not for anything Winnipeg did, including Dylan's open ice hit on Felino. This year, the refs don't call that a penalty, and they do that consistently, I might add, unless Caudry is the nameplate on the back of your jersey, no logic, in previous years. And regardless, if they were calling those body and follow through to the head open ice hits for interference and they aren't it's not justification for losing your cool and doing something more dangerous later in the same game as felino did by the way just so you all know going back to merrick's idea of cheering for the player not the team if i was building a nhl team currently both winnipeg's adam lowry and minnesota's marcus felino would be on my short list of top nine players in constructing it to have on my team dare i say as line mates even that blend of physicality and skill would be welcomed on a team that i was creating that when either isn't playing for their respective teams those teams lose some of that gritness that makes them both more watchable Felino did something regrettable in the heat of the moment. He isn't a dirty player, and he is tough as nails. And neither is Dylan or Lowry of Winnipeg. Those guys aren't dirty players either. Like Felino, they play that hard-to-play-against game a championship NHL team requires to win with. Welcome to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm your NHL outsider, Tim Bigelow. information is up to date in the podcast to the end of last night's nhl central division thursday night games colorado had the two-time defending champs tampa bay as their first opponent coming out of the all-star break and in the marquee cup contender matchup colorado put together a 3-2 home win over tampa bay thursday colorado started on time and captain gabe landeskog's high tip goal opened scoring his 20th of the year as the teams played four on four it's colorado defenseman devin taves off the rush with the net front tip just over the midpoint of the first tampa bay's nikita kucherov works a neutral zone to the offensive zone give and go with braden point through all five colorado players to score 2-1 colorado after one where colorado had a 24-10 shot on goal advantage and only the one goal lead understand tampa bay goalie andre vasileski was pretty good in that Colorado goalie Darcy Kemper had a big stop on Tampa Bay's Steven Stamkos's backhander off the rush in the first. He was pretty good in that too. 156 into the second Colorado 4-on-4 goal. Valerie Nishnushkin short side on a 2-on-1 keep. 725 in Tampa Bay goalie Vasileski covers a puck trickling on the goal line that may have crossed the goal line, but without video evidence as his glove covers all of it to be able to prove whether or not it did. 
A stretch pass springs Tampa Bay's Brandon Point for a breakaway lifted bar and end goal. Tampa Bay's Kucherov stopped by Colorado goalie Kemper Point Blank in the paint. 3-2 Colorado through 40. A scoreless, including a building effort by Tampa Bay to score in the third, but they can't get the equalizer, and that includes three minutes of six on five with the goalie pulled that Colorado survived. The fast start by Colorado was the difference. Two goals in the first 10 minutes in what ends up being a one-goal win over 60 minutes. Colorado started on time and caught a less engaged Tampa Bay team. And honestly, Colorado would have been up more if not for Tampa Bay goalie Vasilevsky's play. Even in the middle frame and Tampa Bay unable to get a third period goal when they pressed for it because Colorado was able and withstood that pressure. And that really goes back to Tampa Bay really starting 10 minutes after Colorado did at puck drop. Or this game probably goes to a lame shootout to decide a winner. But instead Colorado hold down a one goal lead in the third by not sitting on it. But also playing defensively smart too not give Tampa Bay an easy way to tie the game. Neither team scored a power play goal. The penalty kills were both good. And with more ice, Colorado 4-on-4 took advantage. But the talent of both teams isn't suggesting I would give an automatic advantage on 4-on-4 to either team. It's just Colorado made one in this game. We can wonder if Tampa Bay had started the game on time, whether Colorado would have won, or better, just say Tampa Bay didn't. And that provided what Colorado needed to get the lead and keep it the rest of the game. Colorado's Nathan McKinnon did not play versus Tampa Bay, but is likely to return for Sunday's Colorado's next game in Dallas versus the division rival Stars. That's a home-and-home two-game set as the teams return to play in Colorado Tuesday next week. And Colorado is a quick turnaround to play in Vegas Wednesday on back-to-backs. Dallas is a desperate team needing to gain points to get back into the wildcard race. And I wonder after playing the two-time defending champs if Colorado can't help and look at the standings and not be guilty of playing down to their opposition in Dallas because it looks like a mismatch that heavily favors Colorado. However, Colorado last lost in regulation back in mid-December. They have won or picked up points in 18 straight games since. So even when they play down to an opposition, they usually come away with something. Reports are GM Joe Sackick will be looking to add the right player pieces near to the trade deadline mentioning during the second period of the game as a guest on altitude on the game broadcast that injuries could change the areas most needed philadelphia's claude Giroux name has come up and seeing a lot of dallas's joe pavelski and that borderline seems an unrealistic possibility not every team missing the playoffs is going to be planning a team rebuild or selling off their best players In fact, as the deadline approaches, the Colorado team's injured reserve list might be the only tell as to the player addition position-wise Colorado makes. It also requires staying cap compliant, so it may be adding to the team while subtracting from the team in order to make the money work. GM Sackett keeps what he does end up doing pretty under wraps, and that it's likely, therefore, someone you aren't hearing anything about than the obvious names being bandied about. 
Colorado, 45 games played, 33-8-4 record, 70 points, first in the Central in the Western Conference, 778 point percentage, also first. Streak winners of one goal differential, plus 55. Colorado also gained ground as the three division teams trying to catch them all lost their first game after the All-Star break, which you're going to hear about as we go through all the teams. Heading into Friday night's games, Colorado is first in the NHL in points and by point percentage in addition to the division and conference. Minnesota's division most current best six-game win streak ended in a Minnesota 2-0 road shootout loss in Winnipeg Tuesday. The first focal point is Winnipeg's Brendan Dillon's hit on Minnesota's Marcus Foligno. The podcast covers both teams. Of course, you know. I look at this hit as a lesser degree to Chicago's Alec DeBrinkett's open ice hit on Minnesota's Brandon Duhame that didn't get a penalty call on it that maybe should have. By that reasoning, if it's a late hit, as post-game Minnesota coach Dean Evanson felt it was, it warrants a call. Trouble is this year, teams aren't getting those interference calls on those hits. DeBrinkett didn't get a penalty on his on Duhame either. The follow-through to the head-on-shoulder contact are being called as clean hits. What you need to do is take a jersey number and wait for an opening later in the game to respond to it. What Minnesota did wrong was Minnesota's Jordan Greenway went after Dylan right away, and the extra two roughing or instigator, the refs are always going to call. Foligno, arguably one of the toughest SOBs, also wants to stick up for himself rather than have Greenway do it, and heads to jump in, and Winnipeg's Adam Lowry pulls him away. If Foligno were to be tagged as the third player in additionally, Minnesota would have come out worse on the penalty score sheet than they did. Also, as Foligno and Allows were the second fight, technically the refs could have tossed them both out of the game and decided to let Greenway, Dillon fight, and Foligno-Lowry fight to be considered equal without player ejections. That extra penalty for trying to address the hit that wasn't getting a penalty call on it is what put Minnesota shorthanded, and Winnipeg's Mark Shifley gets an off-the-rush short-side power play goal on a cross-crease pass from Kyle Connor. Minnesota's Ryan Hartman misses the short side in the slot later to be able to tie the game. A scoreless second that Minnesota didn't convert on their lone power play in the game. The second was the period Minnesota just couldn't get a goal needed to tie the game on as Winnipeg goalie Connor Halbuck made 27 saves for his third shutout this year. In the third, Minnesota goalie Kapo Kakinen had a big save on Winnipeg Shifley on a breakaway. That's highlighting one of the great saves by Kakinen, who was also stellar with one goal against 27 saves, or Minnesota wouldn't have been in a one-goal game. Minnesota took an early third-period penalty that also took away momentum to be able to come back. The other was when Felino and Lowry fought a second time, and Felino gets a knee shot while Lowry is on the ice after the fight is being broken up. If you think back and the refs had tossed the two players out for the first fight, that actually would have been more beneficial to Minnesota short and long term. Felino gets the extra two-minute unsportsmanlike penalty and still stays in the game. That also takes away the comeback momentum 
in needing to kill another penalty off for Minnesota with less than 10 minutes to go in regulation. It probably should have been five and a game. Winnipeg gets a Nate Schmidt empty net goal, and the Paul Stancy empty net goal after that came back for him being offside. Minnesota gets shut out in the game for the first time this year, while their own goalie, Kakinen, allows one goal against. Minnesota was without defenseman Matt Dumba of the regulars, Winnipeg without top center Pierre-Luc Dubois, top six forward Nick Ehlers, and top four defenseman Neil Pionk. Felt like a postseason game, but the home team desperation of Winnipeg, who are sixth in the division versus Minnesota, the division's second best team by point percentage, was the difference here. Minnesota didn't elevate, especially in the third, and weren't focused as they usually are on making sure to look after Winnipeg paying on the scoreboard. However, two things. Winnipeg, still awful power play, scored off the rush and was one for four. Part of that was how good Minnesota goalie Kakinen was, but it's an outlier power play goal that tilted the game. The team's five-on-five were even, although technically empty net goals are even strength goals. It's still an empty net. Minnesota was 28.6% in face-offs to Winnipeg 71.4%, and that's way too lopsided near 3-1 to one for Winnipeg having possession off the draws. That's where you say Minnesota needed more compete in this game. Likewise, as good as Minnesota goalie Kakinen was, Winnipeg goalie Halbeck was solid in net and got a shutout. The focus on the subjective penalty calls to me is a waste of time because in order to win, you still need to score a goal, and Minnesota didn't generate enough to do so. Minnesota has two games before playing Winnipeg again, and Winnipeg three in between facing the Wild. Minnesota should park this game, although again, the knee by Felino grabbed headlines. That can't be Minnesota's focal point when the teams play again. Scoring goals needs to be. Minnesota fans can blame the officiating, but it's a reach to do so when your team doesn't get any goals in the game. By the way, outside of both Minnesota and Winnipeg, Sportsnet, Jeff Merrick, the next day, talked about Felino's knee and a fight-filled game. Nothing on the Dylan hit. To me, that's reflective of how someone without bias viewed it. Boston's Brad Marchant's player safety department suspendable shenanigans was the more talked-about talking point. Both Winnipeg and Minnesota markets were homer takes. Minnesota defenseman Matt Dumpa upper body is listed as possible to return for Minnesota's next game at home Saturday to Carolina. He practiced Thursday. That game is a matchup versus a top-tier Eastern Conference team. Minnesota, 42 games played, 28-11-3 record, 59 points, third in the Central Division in points. The 702 point percentage is second in the Central Division. Streak, losers of one, goal differential plus 39. Minnesota's first of two home games Saturday versus Carolina, the second Monday versus Detroit, before returning to play divisional rival Winnipeg Wednesday next week. The NHL Player Safety Department handed down a two-game suspension to Felino Thursday, and especially versus Carolina, that's a key player Minnesota would have preferred to have had playing that they won't. It does time up that Felino will next be allowed to play when Minnesota faces Winnipeg again. 
The other division game covered in this podcast is Nashville's 4-3 road loss in Dallas Tuesday. A minor penalty filled first had Nashville have lots of offensive zone time but few shots on goal to show for the strong start. Dallas's Jamie Benn's roughing penalty as Nashville's Yakov Trennan's elbow penalty cancel out on a play where, to be fair, neither warranted penalties that both getting them works out to be the same. A Nashville penalty after allows Dallas's Jason Robertson's net front tip power play goal to beat Nashville goalie UC Saros to open the scoring. Nashville's Ellie Tovalin's point shot wrister goal through a screen beats Dallas goalie Jake Oninger. One all after one. Nashville kills off an early Dallas 5 on 3 power play in the second, but nearing the last five minutes, a delay of game puck over glass penalty leads to another Dallas power play goal by Robertson, his second of the game and 19th of the year, netted on a shot pass net front tip. 19 seconds after Nashville's Matt DeShane's forehand tuck goal ties it, Dallas's Rope Hints then scores on a breakaway forehand backhand and up beauty as the bouncing puck gets past Nashville's Luke Cunnan and Springs Hints. Nashville's Trennan's net front scramble rebound goal with nine seconds left ties it at three through 40 minutes. Prior Nashville's Roman Yossi has fly-by contact through the crease well before the goal and yet Dallas use a coach's challenge for goalie interference or maybe that Dallas goalie Oninger's pad was pushed in by Trennan although he shot the puck and it's already in the net when he does push the pad in as the one who shot it. Basically Dallas take a two-minute minor for a challenge they probably shouldn't take on Nashville's good goal. Dallas's Luke Glendening's defensive zone stick and second effort creates a two-on-one that he finishes for the game-winning goal, 324 into the third. Nashville goalie Saros made a breakaway save on Dallas's Tyler Sagan after as the best chance. Nashville goalie Saros was the better goalie in his four goals against 23 save losing effort to Dallas's Oninger picking up the win, three goals against 20 saves. From the second on, Dallas had more quality and a touch more quantity in shots on goal. 27-23 shot on goal Dallas, the final total, was a lot of both teams not nearly shooting enough as they should be given the quality of the goalies both teams have. Simply after a great but low shot on goal start by Nashville, the Preds got into penalty trouble and Dallas with two power play goals, one in the first and second periods, is a difference here. Dallas went two for six, but they won by a goal and had two power play goals. Nashville's power play was 0 for 4 comparatively. Nashville took more penalties and it's something Nashville color commentator Chris Mason, who was not calling the game as it was broadcast on TNT, has said of late is a concern for him for Nashville. Dallas's fourth best NHL power play isn't a good road game to be undisciplined in. It costs Nashville a winnable game. Nashville bottom pair defense without Mark Borowiecki and Matt Benning shows getting another defenseman for the playoffs is important for Nashville as I said and TNT color analyst Eddie Olchuk suggested the exact D-man I did prior to the last game in the last podcast that being Ben Sherratt. Ben Harper and especially paired with Philip Myers for Nashville is not an adequate NHL D pairing far more an issue than say Dante Fabro having an off night additionally is Nashville especially Miss Benning 
Point percentage-wise, Nashville is not the second-place team in the division. Although, listening to the media in Nashville, there is this false narrative of them being so. This loss to Dallas is costly. It was a division rival game that Nashville, ahead of Dallas in the standings, actually needed to win to have a chance to play 500 this month. Another game between Dallas later in the month and the next division game versus Winnipeg are the other must-Nashville wins. One now that they didn't win. Nashville very reasonably could go on a losing streak and Dallas and Winnipeg are desperate and the Eastern Conference competition additionally this month are straight up a series of cup contender quality group of teams Nashville faces Washington, Florida, Carolina and Tampa Bay. Nashville needs to play better and sorry but the Nashville depth compared to the other five Central Division teams is actually the weakest among them. This team needs to play not like the points they have accrued but as an underdog battling that got them those points in the first place especially the rest of this difficult month nashville divisionally i am telling you has the toughest level of competition in february to try and stay where they sit in the standings this one game needs to be only one game for nashville not a streak of them nashville 47 games played 28-15-4 record, 60 points, second in points in the Central Division, 638 point percentage, that is third in the division. Streak loses a one-goal differential, plus 18. Nashville gets Winnipeg on a back-to-back Saturday after Winnipeg plays in Dallas Friday. That's a schedule advantage Nashville needs to take advantage of. Nashville next week is home to Washington, then on the road versus Carolina and Florida. They certainly did start on time, and they don't have as condensed a schedule as some divisional teams do so keeping sharp for starting the game on time against good teams all this month is a thing to watch if nashville does taking penalties is an indication of not having attention to your details or simply being caught a step behind to have to take that penalty nashville needs to clean this part of their team game up St. Louis misses the opportunity to make up ground with Minnesota and Nashville, both losing in the division with a slow start and a 7-4 home loss to New Jersey Thursday. New Jersey come out quick. They play fast and press, leading to a point shot blast that beats St. Louis goalie Jordan Bennington 2-12 into the game. Just under five left in the first, a New Jersey solo effort through three St. Louis players off the rush adds to the lead that 30 seconds after St. Louis's Clem Costin scores five-hole on New Jersey goalie John Gillies, traded to Jersey by St. Louis during the regular season as New Jersey is facing injury issues. St. Louis put together a strong second after being outshot 10-5 in the first and a diving rebound goal by Braden Shen and a Justin Falk point shot goal off the post and in the net off of New Jersey goalie Gillies that trickles over the goal line to count has St. Louis up 3-2 through 40 minutes. New Jersey kill off a St. Louis power play and then get a two-on-one goal 52 seconds to the midpoint of the third to tie it. St. Louis's Nico Mikola's clean hit draws attention from Jersey's Dawson Mercer, and because both players engage, both get two for roughing. If Mikola doesn't engage, likely only Dawson would get sent to the sin bin. 
With the team's 4-on-4, the quicker New Jersey team get a 2-on-1 goal. New Jersey's Michael McLeod runs over St. Louis goalie Bennington, takes a penalty for it, and St. Louis power play again generates nothing, and New Jersey afterward get a backhander off the rush goal from the dot. St. Louis's Shen, second of the game, 36 seconds after, makes it a one-goal game with less than two minutes left in regulation. St. Louis pulled a goalie and New Jersey beat out an icing to score into an empty net and with 10 seconds left add another empty net goal. St. Louis's slow start to the quicker young New Jersey team had them down two goals, but a quick response made it a one-goal game. St. Louis was solid in the second and took the lead. Most of the third, they look uninspired on the power play to add to the lead, and New Jersey, by just past the game's midpoint of the third, took the lead back. Another power play outage because, again, St. Louis has the opportunity on the power play. They go 0 for 4 in the game and allow another New Jersey off-the-rush goal. Again, a quick response, but a little too late, still down a goal after going into the third with a one-goal lead. New Jersey goalie Gillies, who played in St. Louis's overtime loss versus Anaheim, is like fourth depth chart-wise, which is why St. Louis traded him. And likewise, that's how far down he is on New Jersey's depth chart. And the quickest line for St. Louis, Jordan Cairo, Vladi Tarasenko, and Robert Thomas had some of the best chances, but never found the score sheet. The compete level and limiting New Jersey's young team to play with speed was reminiscent of the issues St. Louis had with Winnipeg in that loss. And now, tied for second in the NHL's power play for league's best, this game, it didn't prop up St. Louis. There also was a lot to dislike in front of Goy Bennington, and still St. Louis barely lost this game, and kind of uncharacteristically did with a dud third period as far as their compete. They found a way to lose the game collectively, not just because of the goaltending. Schedule-wise, St. Louis plays one team with an over 500 record in February. That includes the game they just lost to New Jersey. To me, the New Jersey game was to be the start of a win streak that would, depending on how Minnesota and Nashville did, most likely see St. Louis move up the division standings. Saturday, St. Louis can try and start that win streak at home to Chicago. Next week, an Eastern Canadian road trip, Tuesday in Ottawa, Thursday in Montreal, and Saturday in Toronto. It's the easiest competition a Central Division team has in February. St. Louis player and coach extensions. Vet defenseman Robert Bertuzzo, 33 years old, signed a two-year extension with a 950K AAV. And forward Logan Brown, 23 years of age, signed a one-year 750K one-way deal on Tuesday. Prospect forward Alexei Torpachenko signed a two-way one-year 750K NHL 100K American Hockey League deal Wednesday. All good depth extensions. Bertuzzo is a bottom pair sixth D-man or seventh D-man value for his size, his leadership, and vet play is great. Brown's deal simply means if he goes to the American Hockey League next year, he still gets paid NHL contract. It doesn't mean he has to play all year at the NHL level. That's something people often wonder about one-way versus two-way contracts. But if he were to be sent down, it would require clearing waivers. Torpachenko's development curve looks promising, and he's 22 years old. 
GM Doug Armstrong's most notable extension Wednesday was to give a three-year extension to head coach Craig Berube. He took over the team in 2018 and took them from last place to this Stanley Cup championship for the first time in St. Louis team history in the spring of 2019. St. Louis has had three consecutive playoff appearances with Berube as head coach as well. St. Louis, 45 games played, 26-14-5 record, 57 points, 4th in the Central, 6-33 point percentage, also 4th. Streak, losers of 2, goal differential plus 29. St. Louis, I keep saying, has the schedule advantage not only to end the two-game slide, but also to put together a win streak, and that is the expectation. This New Jersey loss is so surprising. It also should, competition-wise, allow for goalie Jordan Bennington to pick up a win, but you should also expect that goalie Billy Huso will play games. He's been the better of the two goalies of late. He has anticipated to start at home versus Chicago Saturday, but is not confirmed as a starter. Let's take a breakaway and come back with a lot more on Central Division Hockey, the podcast, after this. Take advantage of Johnson & Johnson's winter wellness event and get rewarded. It pays to be prepared for the season. Get sweet deals from Johnson & Johnson's winter wellness event now through December 3rd. If you purchase $15 or $25 of participating products at BJ's, you can get a $5 or $10 reward. Plus, you can even enter to win a Visa Rewards card. Purchase at BJ's, upload your receipt, and choose your reward. It pays to be prepared at BJ's. With the new Chevy Silverado, you might be driving in this. But with the Silverado's redesigned interior and large infotainment screens, it'll feel more like this. Introducing the new 2022 Chevy Silverado. Find new upgrades. Find new roads. Chevrolet. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com holiday. Welcome back. We move now to the second wildcard playoff battleground team, Hopefuls. We covered Dallas's important 4-3 division home win to Nashville Wednesday in the Nashville segment. Dallas required Nashville's undisciplined play to pull off this win, and also three goals from the top line. That is well over 40% of the team's goal and or point production this year additionally. It's saying that it isn't a template for sustainable success. 
The good thing is Dallas found a way to win in a must-win key division game. Dallas has to keep finding ways to win in this stretch of all division games that the results started the right way with the win over Nashville. The next home game versus Winnipeg and home versus division conference best Colorado Sunday is what's on deck. The first of the home and home against the Avs. To me, Dallas hasn't shown consistency, but like Winnipeg, the talent of the teams have underachieved otherwise. I wouldn't predict how this goes other than Dallas has been a better home team than Winnipeg has been a road team, and neither have been very predictable otherwise. Both teams know how important the game is, and that always makes for great games between them usually. Dallas trading of defenseman John Klingberg, as requested, is as quiet of late, still said to be imminent, and I wonder if that uncertainty does affect the locker room or not. What I do know is Klingberg is still a playing Dallas star, and his play helps or hinders the success of this current group. It hasn't been any more inconsistent than any number of other players on this roster. The point is, he is the only guy probably thinking he isn't finishing the year with this group among them. That's hard for Klingberg individually to invest fully into, even if it isn't a team distraction additionally. Dallas would be dumb to trade Joe Pavelski regardless of making the playoffs this year or not, and regardless of the many teams interested in him, which is a no-brainer, I would be utterly surprised if GM Jim Nill didn't keep Pavelski and give him an extension. Some of the worst trade takes are looking at key players on underperforming teams and thinking teams missing the playoffs plan to go to rebuild. The age of the core in Dallas simply isn't reflective of one that strikes me as a deadline seller. It's a veteran group, and especially the veteran leader Pavelski, who since last year has superseded Jamie Benn in that role regardless of who of the two has the C on their jersey. A retool or hockey trade possibly, but Pavelski can still play. He's great on that top line, and I'm sure Dallas doesn't want him especially playing against them on a division rival. Hello, Colorado fans. When the top line is this team's actual only goal production as it is now. Pavelski trade rumors all to me are clueless bad takes. Borderline nonsensical because you simply looked at the playoff cutoff line, not the team itself, who are still making a push. Dallas 44 games played, 24-18-2 record, 50 points, 5th in the central, 5-68 point percentage, streak winners of 1, goal differential minus 1. Dallas point percentage is still below the second and last wildcard playoff spot at present. Pacific Division Anaheim at 573 point percentage, presently slightly better, and by point percentage holding that spot. Edmonton for now falling back, and Winnipeg remains behind Dallas, both of which Dallas needs to try and continue being the case by winning. It's over the next three games going to be a challenge especially to do. With Nashville's tough schedule and three games in hand, Dallas has an opportunity to bridge the gap between those two teams. A Dallas win over Winnipeg with a Winnipeg win over Nashville the next night looks a lot different than a Winnipeg win and a Winnipeg loss to Nashville or Winnipeg winning both games. Winnipeg started after the All-Star break with a 2-0 home win over Minnesota Tuesday. That's covered in the Minnesota segment, and point percentage-wise, we pick up with Winnipeg's segment here. It was the first of five Central Division games for Winnipeg, and it's a one-off unexpected win until Winnipeg demonstrates that they have the consistency to build off of it. Directly ahead are two 
division games Friday in Dallas and Saturday in Nashville, two teams ahead of Winnipeg in the standings like Minnesota is. Although standing-wise, most division teams remain ahead of Winnipeg because of the Jets' own inconsistency. To be honest, I prefer to hold comment till the second meeting Winnipeg has to play at home to Minnesota next Wednesday. That also has Winnipeg play home Monday to Chicago. I know talking with old co-host friend of a Jets podcast I did, Warren Smith, after Winnipeg's game with Minnesota, he brought up it's the only one game fans will say, well, saying beating a good team like Minnesota ought to hold more weight. Truth is, the consistency required to put together a win streak is possible. It's just not actually happened to support it happening for Winnipeg. If you think how evenly played Nashville and Dallas were, that's kind of the expectation for the Winnipeg competitively in the games against them. The second of the back-to-backs, of course, tougher for Winnipeg. You wouldn't think to go with backup Eric Comrie in Dallas, yet I'd prefer Hellebuck for Winnipeg versus Nashville, except Hellebuck is also coming off his third shutout additionally to put that into consideration. Part of me almost thinks Hellebuck plays the back-to-back and Comrie plays at home versus Chicago unless Dallas puts up way too many shots on goal on Winnipeg Friday. Every win at this point is essential for Winnipeg, but it's just as important for Dallas and Nashville to beat Winnipeg in these games for their playoff pushes. Wednesday, Winnipeg GM Kevin Chevaldayoff held a post-All-Star break media availability, and they don't usually say much of anything when he does. He admitted the team was a game worse record-wise since interim coach Dave Lowry took over from when Paul Maurice resigned. He said it was too soon to predict Winnipeg being a buyer or a seller, but did say one thing, deals needed to be money in, money out, hockey trade deals. That's the kind of trade the GM would be looking to make if any teams were wanting to. That says he's keeping his group together and not selling pending unrestricted free agents, but does have an idea of player moves he would to change the mix if Chevy has the right trade partner to do so. Winnipeg, 43 games played, 19-17-7 record, 45 points, 6 in the central, 5-23 point percentage, streak winners of 1, goal differential minus 6. Winnipeg winning a big division game doesn't carry weight if they don't string together wins regardless of who they play. The points awarded really do count the same, although regulation division wins are the best ones to have. At 7-4-2, Winnipeg's division record is comparable to Dallas at 7-5-1, but Nashville is 10-4-1, and that might help understand why Nashville is above both teams in the standings currently. Winnipeg has seven of its next 10 games versus division rivals. They need to put together a win streak or have an overall strong month, even if that win streak wasn't the case. It's a good time for Winnipeg if they can do it. It will hurt any playoff chances that remain if Winnipeg doesn't. What we like is that Chicago helped the Central Division wildcard cause with their 4-1 road win against Pacific Division Edmonton Wednesday. Two goals in a minute and three seconds under three minutes into the game. Chicago's Alex DeBrinkett's power play goal one-timer short side for his 27th of the year and Brandon Hagel's finishing off a three-on-two rush. Edmonton would outshoot Chicago 13-12 in the frame. To tell you, Chicago goalie Mark andre Fleury was excellent 
and Edmonton goalie Mike Smith was not, he should have had that first goal, especially. Former Chicago defenseman Edmonton Duncan Keith went hard into the end boards, back-checking on Chicago's Sean Lafferty, and injured himself and did not return. I think he's out for two weeks now. In the second, Chicago's Flurry had a glove save on Edmonton's Zach Hyman, as well as help from the crossbar and his post until an Edmonton power play goal finally beat him. It was a 2-1 to shot on goal ratio advantage, 25-12 to for Edmonton around that point, yet Edmonton trailed the game. The dominant second, 20-6 to shots on goal, and Edmonton scored just once. A tip power play goal 108 into the third by Chicago's Dylan Strom restored Chicago's two-goal lead early in the third. Just before the third's midpoint, Chicago's Kirby Dock scores net front off the Chicago cycle. Late in the game, Edmonton's Evander Kane battling Chicago defenseman Caleb Jones. High stick Chicago goalie Flurry on a swing through slash effort that he was given a penalty for. Should be suspended for it, in my humble opinion, and eerily similar to the stick, although maybe not as intentional as Marchant's. And he also threw a punch on the Pittsburgh goalie Jari when he got suspended. I, I doubt the player safety department's doing anything about this, but I'd like to see them put a game or two for that. Chicago had good goaltending in the game against Edmonton, and they took advantage of bad goaltending, especially on the first two shots on goal that were goals. To win a game over the rest of the game, they probably don't win without Flurry and Nett. Good result for Chicago, but Edmonton wasn't good, and their goaltending especially wasn't hard game to watch. Seattle and Arizona, with less skill, had better compete by comparison. And seeing as Edmonton fired head coach Dave Tippett Thursday after losing to Chicago, that wasn't a good showing by Edmonton more so than Chicago being all that good besides Flurry, which makes me sound like a broken record when we talk about Chicago episode to episode. Chicago Cubs assistant GM Jeff Greenberg interviewed for the Chicago Blackhawk GM job. That's the first announced candidate from outside of pro hockey. Chicago, 47 games played, 17-23-7, record 41 points, 7th in the Central, 436 point percentage, streak, winners of one goal differential, minus 41. Chicago will have to compete better on the road in St. Louis Saturday and Monday in Winnipeg than they did against Edmonton if they're going to have success. Still, it was great timing to pick up a win and make Edmonton's playoff efforts more challenging and, like I said, help out other Central Division teams. We'll see how Chicago continues to embrace the underdog role this month while they still attempt to get to 500 for the first time this year. Arizona reached a multi-year agreement with ASU. The team announced Thursday the redevelopment plans, rent and reconstruction to be paid up front by the Coyotes. I said last podcast this deal would precede the actual more important one, the Tempe Council vote approval of the Arizona New Arena project proposal. Arizona insider Craig Morgan did tweet clarification of a common misconception. The ASU deal is not contingent upon approval of the proposed arena in Tempe. I will add the Yotes have a building in to play in the Valley agreed to for two years with an option on an additional year that NHL 
Commissioner Gary Bettman approved under temporary status exemption. The ASU facility absolutely falls short of requirements for being an NHL permanent arena. The ASU temporary home deal has also raised concerns by players, player agents, so possibly there is some pushback from the NHLPA and other owners as it relates to the continued revenue sharing with Arizona, as reported by 32 Thoughts' Elliot Friedman. The on-ice Arizona team had two games back-to-back road trip and resulted with a split beginning with Arizona's 5-1 road loss in Vancouver Tuesday. A scoreless first, Arizona had two power plays, no goals, and the second power play ran into the second period and Arizona had a rare 15-7 shot on goal advantage. The penalty kill momentum Vancouver gained allowed former Yote Connor Garland to open the scoring on a one-timer off the circle for Vancouver. A Vancouver power play goal on a high tip 55 seconds after as Arizona's Phil Kessel took a penalty just after Vancouver's first goal. That was followed by a Vancouver off-the-rush goal and in 2 minutes 22 seconds of game time, it's 3-0 Vancouver. Arizona call a timeout and get a Lawson-Kraus net front backhand rebound goal. Vancouver goalie Thatcher Demko stops Arizona's Clayton Keller on a breakaway, part of his one goal against 35 save stellar outing. Early third, Arizona's Jacob Chicken wrestles with Vancouver's Vasily Podkolzin. They get two each for roughing. Important as the four-on-four ends, Vancouver's JT Miller has gone end-to-end and put away a forehand deke that he was at the Arizona blue line before the players exited the penalty box, although it's a even strength five-on-five goal. The extra space, a disadvantage to Arizona with less skilled players of the two teams. I was expecting a Vancouver goal as soon as they started playing four-on-four. At a Vancouver power play goal and Arizona's Kraus fight with Vancouver's Kyle Burrows, and Vancouver on the power play to end the game going two for three. And the last power play, Vancouver didn't put out its top power play unit. Excellent Vancouver goaltending. Arizona's inability to generate chances on the power play while their own penalty kill wasn't able to. It just takes that two minutes, 22 second lapse of being outplayed and the game is out of reach. Vancouver's a seventh place team talking about being a seller at the deadline. They were, besides goalie Demko, no-shows for 20 minutes and handily came out in the second and took control of the game and didn't look back. Former Yote defenseman Oliver ekman Larson had three assists in the win for Vancouver. Arizona squeaks out a misleading final 5-2 road win in Seattle Wednesday. An Arizona defensive zone turnover finds last in the offensive zone. Arizona's Phil no longer the thrill Kessel, and he opens scoring on a forehand tuck. Usually, that's just going to go up the ice for an odd man rush with Kessel to be the last player on the back check. I hope he does get traded really to an Eastern Conference team so I don't have to listen to Tyson Nash blow his blown out tires up anymore. Arizona goalie Karel Vamelka gets back-to-back starts and a big pad stop on Seattle's Yanni Gord off the rush. Seattle had multiple posts and crossbars additionally. Seattle goalie Grubauer did make key stops on Arizona's Jacob Chikrin and Clayton Keller in the first. Moving to the second, a sweet backdoor pass feed for Kessel, and he shanks the open net opportunity. Veggie makes a cross-crease blocker save on Seattle's Jordan Eberle 
on a Seattle 2-on-1. Arizona's next schmaltz off the rush. Goal put far side from the dot, and it's 2-0 Arizona through 40 minutes. Arizona's 0-for-2 power play. That carried over from the second to the third. Allow a Seattle goal one second after the power play expires. Seattle shorthanded, but technically even strength, bar in far side shelf goal. Arizona put together offensive zone time after that goal to eight seconds to two minutes into the third. Restore the two goal lead on Anton Strollman's deep pinch backhander off a block shot point shot rebound. A Seattle off the rush goal with 408 left in regulation makes it 3-2 Arizona. Seattle pull goalie Grubauer. That leads to two empty net goals by Arizona. That's why I said the score was a little boosted. Alex Galchenyuk and Smaltz's second of the game. Seattle outshoot Arizona 36-27 and Arizona goalie Vimelka was key in Arizona winning this game and really a one goal game propped up by the empty net goals. Look, both these teams' records reflect the inability to score goals. Arizona only took two penalties, but Seattle's power play, really, I only recall ever scoring when they're on two-man advantages. I don't recall a fan base doing the wave while losing a game as Seattle did down 3-1. to one. Isn't that when your team is winning crowd thing to do? I could be wrong. Maybe you do do it, winning or losing. The effort by Arizona after giving up the first Seattle goal leading up to Strawman's goal by Arizona was the response goal that good teams find a way to score to win games. That was Arizona's game-winning goal. I'm not suggesting Arizona's a good team. I'm just saying that's the first real time we saw Arizona get a response goal. Arizona is 4-1-0 when having a two-goal lead, and now 6-0-0 with this win when leading after two periods. And that really isn't impressive 47 games into a season, it's just a good indication of how much of a unicorn Arizona having a two-goal lead or leading after two periods hasn't happened for 40-plus games. Arizona goalie Scott Wedgwood was injured in practice the day before Arizona headed out on the road trip. Top prospect goalie Ivan Prozvitov was the backup dress for both games. Coach Turnier and his decision to play veggie both games paid off with Arizona getting the split. And these two games were probably considered Arizona's best chances to win in the month of February. Arizona 47 games played, 12-31-4 record, 28 points, 8th in the central, 298 point percentage streak, winners of one goal differential, minus 71. Arizona is home to Tampa Bay playing on back-to-backs tonight. Next week, Arizona has home back-to-backs versus LA and Dallas Saturday and Sunday and play home to LA the following week on Wednesday. Interesting only to see if Arizona can upset anyone the rest of February. Thanks for listening to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm your NHL outsider, Tim Bigelow. Subscribe to the podcast and YouTube page for free and follow me at SendDivHockey on Twitter for more.
Take advantage of Johnson & Johnson's winter wellness event and get rewarded. It pays to be prepared for the season. Get sweet deals from Johnson & Johnson's winter wellness event now through December 3rd. If you purchase $15 or $25 of participating products at BJ's, you can get a $5 or $10 reward. Plus, you can even enter to win a Visa Rewards card. Purchase at BJ's, upload your receipt, and choose your reward. It pays to be prepared at BJ's. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com slash holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com slash holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com slash holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com slash holiday.